Welcome back to Recovering Church Girls. This is Tanya Adlita, and I have with me Carrie Hoffman. First of all, hi, Carrie. Hi. Coming to us live slash recorded uh, from Sri Lanka. So I'm so excited and I'm so grateful that you uh, are still awake and able to have this conversation. So thank you for making that possible. Yeah, no problem. Well, it's only 940 here, but I am kind of a grandma, so it is a bit late for me. (laughs) Well, and the idea that you're in Sri Lanka. So let's talk about that for a second, because one of the things that I so appreciate and I love about what you're doing is uh, bigger life adventures. So tell me a little bit about that first before we dive into why you're here on Recovering Church Girls. Sure. So I am a yoga teacher and co-founder of the company Bigger Life Adventures. Um, The company is a social enterprise that my husband and I started last year. And what we're doing is running yoga and adventure retreats in amazing destinations around the world. And they are especially designed um, to bring people in recovery together on these adventures. And so that can be recovery from anything, you know, like recovering church girls or addiction recovery or recovery from depression and anxiety or recovery from codependency, like any number of things. We're just really trying to create transformative travel experiences. I love that. And anybody who knows me at all just got this really like twinkly eyed expression because they know why that means so much to me because I feel like travel, especially solo travel, you know, when that's a thing that can kind of open you up in a way that so many other experiences couldn't, but to do that, you know, in a, in a community and in an environment that is specifically designed to help you get at those places that you may not be as comfortable, you know, getting there in other avenues. I just love that. And I feel like travel in and of itself is such a soothing balm to so many different things that ail us, um, but especially to sameness and to living a life that really uh, prevents us from seeing how other people may be affected by, you know, decisions that are made by our country or, you know, decisions that we grew up in thinking are the normal. Again, all of these different layers of all the things uh, that all just totally resonates with me. So I'm really, really excited about what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. We're super excited about it too. And we're super passionate about running this company and it's still a new thing, kind of a baby business, but we're just like so excited about it. More excited than we've ever been about any other like entrepreneurial ventures we've had. So yeah. I love it. It'd be great. (laughs) I love it. And I should say too, the way that you and I met, um, I feel like this is another one of those times where you know, there was definitely a hand of the divine in the way that that we met. So I was attending a conference that I had no intention of actually going to, but enough of my friends would be like, oh, I'll see you in San Diego, right? And I was like, okay, fine, I'll go, go to San Diego. The event was inexpensive in and of itself, but I hadn't planned for any of this. So I ended up staying at a hostel that you were currently managing at the time. And you were only there for like another couple of months afterwards because you were on your way to start this whole adventure. And of course, as I'm in San Diego for the first time and, you know, wanting to go down to the beach and and I'm exploring and I see all these beautiful cliffs and I was like, oh my gosh, I so wish I knew a photographer. I mentioned this to you and lo and behold, guess what? (laughs) You're also a photographer. So we had to go and have this amazing little photo shoot on this. um, Remind me, was it, I'm going to butcher the name of the. Oh, what is that special little, um, I think Mm. it's Santa Cruz beach. It's just this little secret spot that's a lot lesser known than like the main beach in Ocean Beach with some amazing cliffs and stuff. So yeah, that was so gorgeous. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so much fun. And it was just, it was such a great experience to, to share that with you. And I think to really document, I remember there was this one scene um, that, and I'm, I'll have to post the picture just because it meant that much to me, that there are these two uh, massive cliffs that have kind of come together, but there's this little tiny opening between the two. And there was something in that idea about, you know, literally being forged 
out of these two opposing forces. Um, and that is one of my favorite pictures from our session is me between these two rocks. And uh, yeah, so I can, I'll ramble about that, the whole experience. Um, so I, in order to keep myself from doing that, <laughs> I want to ask okay. you, um, when we first talk, talking about the idea of recovering church girls, what does that stir up for you? Like, what's your story? How does this all resonate for you? Sure. So it definitely resonated with me immediately. I think when I first saw your Facebook post about it, because that's what I am really, I'm a recovering church girl, but I had never heard it put in that phrasing before. And it mm. was just so spot on that it immediately hit me. So a little bit about my background. I was raised in the Midwest in a very traditional, awesome, loving family. Um, I'm the oldest child with two other siblings. And my parents both grew up in the church, like in the Baptist and in a Methodist church in the Midwest. And my grandfather was a minister. And my parents met at church. So they were both like just very active in that culture their whole lives and they raised us that way as well. So from a young age, I was like always in Sunday school. And then in teenage years, I was like the youth group poster child, as yep. I've heard other people say <laughs> on this podcast. That was me. So so we grew up mostly going to Baptist churches in the Midwest in Iowa and Ohio. So they were pretty conservative, very evangelical. So there was a big emphasis on like, you know, converting other people, like bringing your friends to youth group and making sure that they've made their personal decision to mm. like follow Jesus. And there was a lot of the whole like legalistic aspect of it as well. So, you know, like drinking, drugs, sex, partying, all of that stuff was like a definite no-no. <laughs> and I had a huge influence of just my parents wanting us to like, you know, be the good Christian kids, like bring our friends to church. Um, yeah, always make good decisions. Like, always, you know, do our devotionals and read the Bible and go to youth group and church and however many other activities we could. And I went to a public, I went to public school my whole life. Um, so I was in like a mainstream school, but I always had that heavy like church upbringing that I did follow basically all the way through, you know, high school until I went to college. So what, what was that like for you in going through, you know, kind of the public school experience? Because I can totally, first of all, I can totally identify with everything you have just laid out. And I think, too, for me, I felt this, um, this tension being in the public schools because, of course, I've been hearing things like we're in the world and not of it. And don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but be an example. It's amazing, the Bible verses that come back to me, you know, 20 and 30 years later. It, but mm -hmm. that, that idea of you're here, but you're not really here, and you're here to be an example. So it's almost like this implied, um, you're better than everyone else that you're going to school with in the idea that you're already set apart and you've been saved, and now it's your job to then save them, but don't forget that literally every decision that you would make is going to influence whether or not someone lives in internal damnation or not. You know, no pressure or anything, but just don't forget that. Did you have any of those types of experiences, you know, especially in high school as, you know, the peer pressure starts to ramp up and you're kind of walking that line between the church side and then the school side? Yeah, I did have some experiences like that. Um, I went to a pretty big high school and it was in a pretty nice like suburb. So I had a good friendship group, um, but I wasn't really like in the popular crowd at all. I was in like the theater and band nerd crowd. And I don't know if it was something about those friends that it was just like 
less partying, less of the typical teenage behavior um, than, you know, the jocks or the cheerleaders or Mm -hmm. those types of people. Um, So I didn't feel a lot of peer pressure in high school to like go out and do those things that I was told not to do. But I definitely started to realize like later on in high school, maybe around age 16, 17, that like most of my best friends didn't have this super strong Christian faith that I had. And it did start to feel a little bit weird to me. I almost started to feel like I kind of had a double life because Mm. I had really good friends at church who believed the same way I did. And then I had really good friends at school who we just like didn't talk about that stuff. And there was this pressure that would come from church and youth group and other Christian activities that I should be like trying to get them to think about these things and come to church. So I remember like being an emo kid, I think I had a Zanga or something. Like, oh my gosh, my I remember blog. that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember one, I would like stay up late at night and write like poetry and do and write blogs and all this stuff on my Zanga sometimes, just typical like early 2000s high school stuff. And I wrote this long post one time that was like all about, it was kind of like me coming out as a Christian Mm. to all my friends who didn't really know how strongly I felt about it. And I just felt the need to do that for some reason. So I did it on the internet. And then, (laughs) I mean, people were like, good for you. But it didn't like change their minds or anything. Right. right. And I did have like, I had this one friend all through high school who I did bring to youth group and church and like these youth conferences with me. And she became really close to my family because her family didn't go to church and she kind of came with my family to a lot of these events all through like high school and I remember feeling really good about that like that was what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah that makes a lot of sense to me especially because there's that uh, kind of affirmation and not only the acceptance of the community aspect of it, but there's also a little bit of a, you know, we talk about gold stars a lot around here. There's that gold star that you get from bringing somebody into the fold, you know, kind of, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that yeah. totally makes sense to me. So at what point in time did you start to feel like maybe there was something either missing in this idea or was there something that, you know, wasn't resonating any longer? Like what happened for you that, that caused the shift to start to see the culture differently? Well, it's kind of a, a common story, I think, but it was around age 18 and going to college. And before this, I remember specifically this one time I was like leading Bible studies for my youth group and like leading the younger kids because I went to a really small church at the time. And I remember someone saying to me, I think it was like the youth pastor was saying to me, this was like the summer before I went to college, how most people or a majority, I guess, of, you know, high school kids who grow up Christian and then go to a secular university lose their faith or stop going to church and he said like that happens to most people but I have I believe that you're not going to be one of them it won't happen to you because you're like so strong and so good something along those lines you know Mm -hmm. that's just a paraphrase I remember hearing that and I remember thinking like yeah of course it won't happen to me like (laughs) I would never you know Mm -hmm. I would never give up on this and that's what happened basically (laughs) (laughs) I went to a regular um, liberal arts college in New York, so I was far from home, and I started out there just, you know, like, there was a Christian fellowship group that I joined, but it was pretty small, and then I was living in the dorms, and I just started, you know, as college kids do at age 18, it's your first time away from home, like, I made friends, and... I decided that probably trying to drink wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, you know, as long as I like 
didn't get drunk. Um, that's what I told myself. So I started partying a little bit, just in the normal, pretty harmless college style. And that's when I really started to feel like I had a double life mm. because the Christian fellowship group at my college was really small, as I said. Um, so within like one semester, my freshman year, I was elected to be the vice president, even as a freshman. And I took on that role. But then around the time that I had just taken on that role is when the wheels started turning in my head, sort of. Mm -hmm. I was like meeting all these other people from different perspectives. And I was, you know, learning a lot in these classes about the history of the Bible and the history of all these other like ancient texts and religions and, you know, all the things you do freshman year of college. And I just started having all these doubts. And I also saw that I had more fun with my friends who were not in the Christian fellowship. Right. <laughs> and I felt, I felt more at ease with them. And I felt mm. more, I felt like I had more in common with them for some reason than I did with the limited group of, of students who were in the Christian fellowship. And eventually I just felt like a hypocrite for sticking with it because I felt like I had to hide the fact that I was going out on weekends and drinking and partying and then like leading these meetings once mm -hmm. a week also. And I just told them I couldn't do it anymore. So I stepped down from that. And from that point forward, it was kind of just like a slow fade into the background, mm. if you will. Um, I started just questioning things more and more and really over over several years just stopped buying into that ideology of this is the one and only way you know the right. one and only answer to life yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and i think especially you know the idea of an openness and an inclusivity of people outside of organized religion that was something that was really surprising to me as well of you know i had always thought that we had the corner on the market of you know right. bringing people in but really it wasn't even so much about accepting people the way they are it's well we want you to come in but then we want you to change i feel like was kind of the messaging around a lot of organized religion and especially in the evangelical world. So then right. contrast that with people who are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. I feel like that's actually when I first learned what acceptance really was as opposed to, you know, the environment that said it was accepting, but really wasn't. Right. It's like, we'll accept you, but then you have to become one of us. Right. Yeah, which, you know, really kind of begs the question, what kind of acceptance is that? And now that we're both far enough removed from all of it, it's so easy to see. I mean, it is so easy to see in retrospect, but I don't know about you, but man, when I was in it, I didn't see it at all. It was just this idea of, but that's the way that you become a better person, or that's the way that you're safe. Because so much of it, I felt, was really fear-based marketing. <laughs> <laughs> to be really blunt, yeah. you know, oh, it's just totally. everything was about fear and control. And I just didn't see it like that until I was far enough removed to get a little perspective. Right. And I think that that fear is what kept me sort of clinging on for as long as I did, because even throughout college, like after I stepped down from that leadership role, I would still go to church. There was like a campus church that they would like drive us to once a week if we wanted to go. And I would still do that every once in a while. But then it was like, okay, this is the chunk of my week, this small chunk that's reserved for like doing this thing that I still feel like I should do. And then the rest of my week had nothing to do with that really. Um, but it was fear, you know, it was like fear of leaving that ideology that had been drilled into me for my entire life and I thought you know if I if I totally abandon this like I'm going to hell you know mm -hmm. that's what I've been taught right right exactly so what happened for you you know kind of your own personal spiritual journey in that process did you you mentioned the idea of everything else from the Christianity side kind of faded to the background would you still mm -hmm. consider yourself a spiritual person in that process or did it all kind of dim 
you know, and I'm curious too, you mentioned the idea of being a, a yoga teacher now and just getting to know you a little bit during this process. I very much feel like you have a spiritual side of you. For many of us that left the church, we kind of went dark for a while first and then came back through a different avenue as far as our mm-hmm. spirituality is concerned. What was that journey like for you and, and how did you navigate all of that? I definitely went dark for a while, as you said. Um, I mean, I never stopped believing in God. Like, I've always believed in a God or a higher power or some sort of force that's out there. Um, But I pretty much strayed away from Christianity and just started calling myself agnostic, but not really devoting any of my time or, you know, mental capacity to spirituality for many years. And it wasn't really until like the last um, two years that I found spirituality again. And most of that has been through recovery and through yoga. Mm. So now I would say I do have a big, important spiritual life again, and it's changed my life so much. And I feel like that process of losing my faith in the church I grew up in and then having really like nothing or not knowing what I was, what I could, you know, find as a spiritual alternative for so many years, it was a really hard time in my life. And it Mm. contributed to a lot of the negative things that I went through. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. And I think that there's something about that process. It's kind of like we're undoing and then we're redoing. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that can be very quick for people. And then in other times it can take years. It can take decades because there's so much to undo before we can feel safe to really explore or be open or to be willing to trust again. I mean, I've, (laughs) my goodness, I'm 42 years old and I'm pretty sure I'm still working on some trust issues that came as a result of, you know, all of the, the things I experienced through the church. And of course there were other experiences that added to that, but the foundation is still coming from the purity culture. And the idea that, you know, men are only after one thing and it's the women's job to dress appropriately so that we don't cause the men to stumble because they couldn't possibly be held responsible for their own actions. You know, all of those different layers, when that's what you believe and you're also told that everything that's wrong in all of humanity and in the entire world comes down to the sins of a woman. And, you know, like you could just go and, and, and all the things that women are taught as young girls growing up in the church it creates a bit of a mindfuck, you know, eventually at some point in time when you put all the layers together and you really sit and and look at each piece and how it impacts the decisions we make and how we think about who we are. That's why this podcast exists. (laughs) It's because of all of those things. Yeah, definitely. And it was confusing even then, you know, I remember like growing up in church and hearing verses about how like women are are here to serve men and you know when people get married and their vows sometimes they have that like the man is serving god and the woman is serving the man or something along Mm -hmm. those lines and i remember at the time thinking like that's that's a little weird you know isn't it (laughs) isn't it like the year 2000 or something aren't we (laughs) supposed to be equal Mm. um but then it was, it would always be explained away in like a, a tidier sort of version of how, well, you know, that's just the way God wants it. And if your husband is following God, then you'll be fine or right. something like that. Yeah. The yeah. whole idea of, of the man being the head of the household. Yeah. That resonates on so many levels. And I think too, it's, it's such an interesting place because on one hand, read through the subtext on that. It's okay. So if I marry a guy who is following God, then I'm safe, but it still requires the woman to be the one to evaluate the man's relationship with God. Like it doesn't put you still on equal footing, even though you're the one that's supposed to be submissive, you also have to manage him and his spirituality to ensure that you're okay and that you can submit to him because he's submitting to God. Like it's still totally screwed up. (laughs) It makes no sense, really. No, it's no, totally not at all. Yeah. yeah. 
That's interesting. I haven't thought about that that component for a while. Uh, and we were talking before we started recording and say, you know, every episode that we've done, as you and I are both listening to them and I'm listening to them again, it's like, oh, yeah, there's that piece because I haven't thought about that in 20 years. And, oh, yeah, there's <laughs> that because that dovetails into this. Yeah, so many different layers mm-hmm. to it. Yes. So you mentioned the idea of you know, kind of your, your way back in through recovery and yoga. Can you tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that and how did one influence the other and what is your spiritual practice like now? Sure. So to try and not go into too much detail, basically, as I said, I didn't start drinking until I was 18 in college. I was a super good kid. Um, and then when I started drinking, I sort of like immediately felt like I had found the solution to some things Mm. because I was always a really shy, introverted person. And I always wanted to be more social. I was always jealous of those, those people who were like really boisterous and exciting in high school and stuff. But I always had this really shy personality and just wished that I could feel more comfortable in big groups of people and in social situations. And as soon as I started drinking, I realized that that did that for me. Mm. And so I loved it, of course. And I managed to keep things under control for a number of years um, in kind of a functional alcoholic type of sense. So I think there was something a little bit different about my drinking kind of from the beginning. Because Mm. even in the early days, I would black out all the time. And when people would tell me, oh, I've never blacked out, I just always thought that they were lying or something. (laughs) Because I would black out all the time. And I would be like, okay, well, nothing bad happened, so it's fine. Right. Um, It's just the way it is. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, I was secretive about this with to my family um, this for as long as I could be, basically. Um, so they had no idea that I was drinking. And did they know that you had stepped out of things from the church perspective? I also tried to keep that a secret for as long as I could. I totally get that. I think there's many of us that do totally get that. Yep. Yeah. So in my way of thinking, um, not saying that it was correct, I was like, I'm super lucky and blessed that my parents are paying my tuition. So I need to be the person that they expect me to be until that's done with. Mm. And so after I graduated from college, I sort of like stopped, stopped hiding as much. I was still hiding some things. um, But I, I felt like I could be a little bit more honest after my college graduation So they realized that I did drink and I did enjoy going to bars and stuff. And they were not happy about that, of course. Um, And that created a really big rift in my Mm -hmm. family between me and my parents specifically that lasted for a long time. And, you know, still to this day is existing because they, they now know fully that I don't believe in the things I believed when I was growing up. Um, So anyway, long story short, um, 11 years later, 11 years after I started drinking, things had gotten really bad. I was no longer a functional alcoholic. I was very dysfunctional. I was going to festivals and doing all these drugs and then like drinking in the morning to get rid of hangovers and secretly drinking at work. And I was just super dependent on alcohol. So how things got there is kind of its own story with many factors, but shit hit the fan. If I'm allowed to say that you were absolutely when I was 29. (laughs) Okay. So, so after, you know, a couple years of like problems starting to ramp up more and more shit hit the fan when I was 29. And I finally realized that I had a major problem and Mm. I had to quit drinking. And so I went to Alcoholics Anonymous because that's the only thing I knew to do really at the time. I had a great friend who had gone into that program about a year before I did. And she kind of led the way for me. 
And through getting sober and working the 12 steps of AA, it was my path back into spirituality. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. So yeah, um, it was definitely (laughs) a more dramatic story than I would have wished for my life, you know, but it was exactly the way things needed to happen. I learned so much about myself through the process. Um, I learned so much about my higher power and what I actually believe in. And then yoga had kind of always been there throughout Mm. the last few years of my drinking and then throughout my recovery. Um, When I was still drinking, I was kind of always hoping that yoga would save me somehow (laughs) because I would do things like sign up for these 30-day challenges where you're supposed to go to a class every day at your studio. And I would think, okay, like if I'm doing that, then I can't drink too much. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I would just like drink too much anyway and miss a class and be like, oh, well, that's over. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Stuff like that. So once I finally got sober, I started to really dive into my yoga practice because when you are used to going to bars and going to parties and your whole social life revolving around alcohol. And then suddenly it doesn't, you have a lot of time on your hands. Mm -hmm. So I started going to more classes and workshops. I started taking my meditation practice more seriously and it just all escalated from there. And I started to really feel like yoga was the time when I was actually connected to my higher power. Mm. Yeah, I love that. There's something that I, something else that I really appreciate about yoga that took me a while to be able to embrace, but that idea of actually being in my body, I didn't know that I wasn't in my body. Like, and I, and I hadn't been for goodness, probably a good 20, 30 years, uh, which I mean, sounds ridiculous coming out of my mouth. And yet at the same time, the environment in which I was in was all about, you know, work really hard, do all the things, get the gold stars. There was no interconnectedness with who I am as a person along with what it is that I'm doing and heaven forbid, definitely not with how I was feeling. Like emotions, physical feeling, all of those things were discounted so extremely so because the goal of saving the world or you know, being the good Christian or whatever, whatever that thing was that was held out in such high esteem, that was worthy of whatever other sacrifice that I might have to give, whether that was physically, whether that was emotionally, whether that was mentally, there was such a dissociation within myself that I didn't identify for years and years and years. And now I'm at that point of like, I'm making amends to my body. (laughs) It's pretty much where I'm at now. But I think yoga was a big part for me to be able to bring it together. Because of course, growing up, you know, yoga was a bad thing. Like it was, that was right. magey. And same thing with meditation. Yeah. That's, you know, just, those are things that we don't do and we don't talk about them kind of like, you know, smoking and drinking and, and dancing with boys. Like these are not things that we do and we don't even talk about them. It's just that far mm-hmm. off limits. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. I can see how that would be such a, a beautiful and compelling way back into a spiritual existence with that. Right. Because I totally identify with what you're saying about being disconnected from your body, because really with the whole purity culture and modesty culture, we're taught from a young age that our bodies equal shame Mm -hmm. and that we need to be ashamed of our bodies and hide them and cover them up. And so that coupled with my shyness and my addictive personality or whatever you want to call it, however you want to explain it, I just had this desire to numb out. I was Mm. uncomfortable in my own skin, completely uncomfortable being myself. Um, And so, I mean, all the drinking and partying and drugs I did were just an escape, you know? It was a Mm -hmm. desire to feel numb and feel something other than so uncomfortable, And so yoga was this path to really, you know, own my own body, own my own self, realize that the body is part of my spirituality and that I need to love myself and take care of myself and accept myself the way that I am. Mm -hmm. And it's just been so, so powerful for me. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting because I'm thinking about that verse that talks about our bodies as temples. And I'm wondering how the hell the church got it so screwed up in the process of the church being the church. Like we have actual scripture that backs up and gives us the foundation for elevating self-care. Where did it go so wrong that then this idea of sacrificial living to the point of hurting ourselves became not only acceptable, but praiseworthy? Like, how did that even happen when we've got the scripture? Like, if if we're going to go, you know, let's follow the Christian thinking for a minute and say that we're going to live based on scripture. Okay, our bodies are temples. So what happened there? <laughs> like it's just it's it's a bit of a mind bender to say how did we get so far it away is. from that? I it's such a mind bender. I feel like it has to have something to do with the politicized politicization, if I can say that correctly, <laughs> of Christianity mm. because we have this huge divide at least in the United States between progressives and conservatives and a lot of these things that we can do to actually care for ourselves, our bodies, and our environment are associated with the left-wing liberals, which Christianity, for the most part, has decided is the enemy. So suddenly, if you are a vegetarian or a healthy eater or a yogi or somebody who cares about the environment, then that's associated with you know, the hippie movement, Mm -hmm. or you must be a tree hugger, or you must be, you know, you must be new age, you know, all of these things that the conservative Christians don't want to associate with. Right. I love, I love that you brought that up because I think that again, when we're talking about the culture of the Christian church and the way that it's impacted those of us who grew up in it, I think the political nature is something that is so incredibly important. And most everyone that I know now has kind of come through this entire rebirth process, if you will, um, that, you know, most of us don't agree politically with our parents' generation any longer because we've had this process ourselves where we've been able to, again, step separate, get a little perspective and reevaluate things from this current lens. And then that's fascinating because then when you bring us all around, you know, the holiday table, Thanksgiving coming up or, you know, whatever the case might be, the conversations are very different. And those of us in our generation being really anchored in, we feel very passionately about the way that we think and feel about things now. And I feel like we're more vocal than what the generations have been previously. So to be able to kind of put it all together, that's where you're seeing so much of this tension that happens even within the family. But it's not just about religion and politics. It's so many other aspects of our lives that might have been informed by either religion or politics. But it's it's much further reaching and much, much more pervasive than just those two extremes. Right, totally. And I feel like a lot of people are, you know, going through that experience and, and waking up and, and seeing it from that outside perspective after gaining some distance. And I feel like one of the big things that I've noticed after going through that experience is all the damage that has been done to my family members and people in that culture because of the secrecy and the shame and the dishonesty that we associate with this way of life. I mean, for example, in my family, in my church culture, it was very frowned upon to talk about anyone's mental health issues Mm. or any, you know, like real problems that were considered, what's the word? I mean, we weren't we were definitely supposed to portray an image of having everything together and being the perfect christian family mm-hmm. and not having any issues or problems and it's just i mean it's to the point where like my parents kept hidden from me for my entire childhood the fact that my grandfather who i never met had committed suicide mm. And obviously, 
that event, I'm sure, had a profound traumatic impact on my father. And I felt like when I finally found out about it, why haven't you told me for so many years? Mm -hmm. Like, I have a right to know this, you know? I never met my grandfather, but this is my family history. Mm -hmm. And if there's a serious case of depression and suicide in it, then I need to know that information. Right. But I think it was the church culture and that idea of brushing it under the rug and not talking about the unsavory bits that kept that a secret. Yeah, absolutely. I would completely uh, back that theory up. And I think what becomes so incredibly dangerous in that is that it also becomes crossed spiritually. So the idea being, you know, that there is a physical ailment and yet it's put into a spiritual lens of, well, that's what the doctor said, but I'm not going to say those words out loud because then I'm bringing it into myself. And I, I'm still kind of split on this because I do believe that there is power in the words that we choose. And I'm very selective about the words that I use, especially if it starts, the sentence starts with I am. I've become much more aware of the power that I'm bringing into my own life by saying I am X, Y, and Z. I have had a really long history of saying I'm tired and I'm burnt out and I'm exhausted. And gee, what do I always feel? Hmm, tired. It's a very simple, you know, some oversimplification of this idea. So I'm saying I recognize the power of, you know, the creative force that goes into our language. But when it's so far to the extreme that there is a concern that there is some sort of a health issue or a mental health issue to not be able to say it for fear of making it worse on top of fear of the the stigma that goes along with that. And then, of course, then there's all the, always the idea of, well, that must be a manifestation of something wrong in your life spiritually, because if you were living the way that God intended you to, then you wouldn't have this illness or, you know, this mental health breakdown or whatever, you know, fill in the label here. That is incredibly dangerous. And it's created a culture in which, you know, authenticity is something that is so highly valued now because we haven't seen it for so freaking long. Right. And it's so refreshing. And I'm so thankful that many people are becoming authentic and vulnerable, even in the age of social media. And it's, that's what we need to reduce the stigma against, you know, mental health and addiction and any of these issues. But it's just so damaging to put pressure on people to appear perfect all the time. And if they're not, then they must have a problem between them and God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that idea of judgment and shame is so prevalent, even in, you know, kind of my own recovering process and and really, really starting to dive deeper into the sub layers of what has caused me to think and feel and act the way that I have. There's something even in that. um, And I, I think it was a Reiki session that I was doing. It was, it was a Reiki session um, that the kind of the thing that was mirrored back to me was she's like, there is such a self-hatred that you have in you that is showing up this way and this way and this way. And she's like, that's what we need to really bring some healing to. She's like, it's not about the symptoms, you know, they'll, they'll take care of themselves, but really she's like, there's something deeper here that I need you to work on. And so that of course sent me into like, okay, well here, I thought I was done with therapy. Nope. Nope. Let me go ahead and go back to that. You know, and again, and it's, it's looking at my life on all levels. It's the yoga, it's the stretching, it's the intentional movement, it's the meditation, it's, it's putting myself in nature and to be able to connect. It's having conversations like these. It's all of the ways that we can take care of ourselves and bring all these pieces of ourselves back together again. I am a firm believer that that's the way that we can really, or I should say that's one of the ways that we can experience a deeper healing by bringing ourselves together instead of this disassociation and the shame and the guilt and all the layers that come into play with that. Totally. And that was what what was so refreshing to me when I first went into AA. And I don't think that AA is a perfect program or the only way to recover from addiction. I don't believe that at all. And I use many different 
modalities of recovery nowadays. But when I first went into AA, it was like a breath of fresh air because I was like, whoa, these people are telling the truth about Mm. all their ugly bullshit and all the negative parts of themselves. And they're not trying to pretend everything's perfect. And they're not, they're not judging other people, you know? And that was always such a thing for me that I noticed in church that bothered me so much was the gossipy judgment of it Mm. under the guise of prayer requests (laughs) or something along Mm. those lines. Yeah. Okay. Even just seeing prayer requests kind of obviously made me giggle because I audibly (laughs) did. Um, But then also I'm remembering moments of, you know, well, I have an unspoken prayer request. And I remember the conversation going, well, we can't agree with you in an unspoken prayer request because you might pray to have the strength to murder your ex-husband. And we don't know what you're saying. So we can't agree with you. Like, I remember that being an actual conversation that would not allow someone to say, I've got something I want prayer about, but I'm not comfortable. I don't feel safe here in this environment sharing it with you. So even that Mm -hmm. privacy wasn't respected. So it's just kind of like, well, again, the head tilt to the side going, dude, what the fuck? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. I don't think I ever heard anything like that. But when I heard people say unspoken prayer requests, my thinking was always just, oh, that person is attention seeking because mm. they're going to say they have something unspoken. So they want you to come so up to them afterwards to and be like, yeah. oh my God, are you okay? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, mean I don't think thing. that's true. One, yeah. I think that was a thing also that always bothered me. Right. And it was just the gossipiness of it. Like we don't gossip. Gossip is bad. It's in the Bible. You're not supposed to gossip. But when we go around and say prayer requests, we're going to let out all these stories about our friends and family and neighbors and all these things that in any other context would be considered gossip. But now we're allowed to say them because it's a prayer request. Because we're praying for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that. I don't think we've talked about that yet in the the podcast. And I, I think that there's something so fascinating to me about this, I almost always felt like there was a little asterisk behind the verses that talk about not gossiping. If kind of like, kind of, sort of, <laughs> it's like, we, we hold this as an ideal, but in practical application, it really isn't here. And right. it wasn't just the prayer request piece. I feel like just in general, in it, I guess it's something I still wrestle with because where is that balance of the intentional community and kind of letting your guard down and having that that level of vulnerability and the authenticity we were just talking about, and yet at the same time, doing that in such a way that is each individual volunteering themselves, as opposed to the actual definition of gossip being talking about someone else's experience. It's something that I still don't know that I've got quite, you know, figured out what that looks like because I never saw it modeled. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I never, I hadn't thought about that one for a while. (laughs) See, here we go again. Another, yet another layer. Just when we think we've got it all figured out. (laughs) I know. Oh my goodness. So what's next for you, Carrie? Like as you were, you know, especially between bigger life adventures and having this work that you're doing in the world that brings together the recovery piece and the yoga piece and creates this transformative experience. There's a lot of you know, even spiritual responsibility in that idea of what you're creating, the container that you're creating, which I think is so beautiful. You've got that piece. You've got yourself and your husband and living as a digital nomad. Those are a lot of moving pieces. How are you taking care of yourself in this? And what does that look like for you? You know, kind of like, where do you go from here? Well, it was an interesting transition going from having a job and a house and a relatively stable life in San Diego to becoming a digital nomad, but it was always something that my husband and I had dreamed of doing, and interestingly enough, um, it was one year almost exactly after I got sober that we moved out of San Diego and packed all our stuff and sold most of it and took off 
and eventually moved to Asia. But funnily enough, there were people that were in my family, in my Christian community, and then also in my recovery community that heavily advised me not to move to Asia and not to become a digital nomad, not to step outside of the comfort zone of being able to go to AA meetings and stay in that tight-knit recovery community because everyone assumed that I was running away. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and I understand that assumption because there is this terminology in recovery called pulling a geographic, which is basically when you move to a different place because you think that's going to fix all your problems. And surprise, surprise, you usually take yourself with you and it doesn't. (laughs) But anyway, for me, once I got sober and sort of dove back into my yoga and my spiritual life, I felt like I had unlocked the key to this treasure chest of everything that I had always wanted to do, but kept getting delayed or put on hold or was just out of reach because of basically my drinking and drug use and everything that was chaotic and fucked up in my life for so many years. So it took about a year after I got sober to make this happen. And I insisted that I wasn't running away. I was coming back to myself. Mm. And I truly feel like that is what has happened. And it hasn't been 100% easy, struggle-free. But we've now been living a nomadic life for about 14 months. So most of the time in Asia, with a little bit of time back in the States, And it's just been super amazing, like full of spiritual growth, personal growth, inspiration. We came up with our business idea on this journey and it just, it came to us in such an organic, authentic way that just felt like, oh, that's it, you know? Mm. We were traveling with a friend. I was planning to become a yoga teacher. And my husband is a chef, and he specializes in making awesome vegan food. And we've traveled together through, like, 30 countries already. And we've always just loved traveling and finding authentic experiences. And we were talking to our friend, um about all of these things and she was like you guys should just do a retreat company you'd be so good at it and at first of course we were like I don't know like I don't know if anyone would come with us I'm not even a yoga teacher yet blah 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 all these excuses and over the three days that we were traveling together we were actually at the temples of Angkor Wat in Cambodia Mm. which is an amazing spiritual place And we started thinking about it, talking about it more and more. By the end of that weekend, we were like, you know what? We're going to do it. (laughs) I've got goosebumps. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the company name is Bigger Life Adventures. And that actually came from something that my first sponsor in AA said to me. And when we were working together, she just once out of the blue said to me, your life can be bigger than your biggest dreams for it. Mm. And at the time I was like, okay, sure, whatever, you know, (laughs) cliche. (laughs) And then she was right because here I am in Asia, just making it work, working freelance and teaching yoga and finding random online jobs and traveling and seeing all these amazing places and starting this company And if you had told me that this is what I would be doing three years ago, I probably would have laughed at you. I probably would have been like, no, I'll still be working at the hostel. It's fun. You know, I can handle it. Right. (laughs) Or something (laughs) like that. That So so much fun. I love that. Yeah. So we do have a lot of plates spinning per se. We have the retreat company which we're still working on you know getting the momentum going and building our audience we really feel called to focus on retreats for people in recovery because there are so many yoga retreats out there and we don't want to just be one of many we really want to specialize in working with the audience that we are passionate about Mm -hmm. working with 
and my husband is also in recovery now, so he'll be okay with me revealing that. Um, and that was part of the process over mm -hmm. the last couple of years was getting him there as well. He took a little bit longer than I did, but that's okay. You and I'm super, to be, right? yeah, I am super lucky that he shares a very similar upbringing to me. We met when we were pretty young. We were both, you know, pretty big partiers. We met at a bar into the heavy drinking restaurant work type of lifestyle. And when you meet when you're young, you either grow together or you grow apart. Mm -hmm. And we had a super chaotic, sketchy couple of years after I got sober. And eventually it clicked for him too. And we're super blessed that we're on the same page again. We have this business and we just feel really passionate about reaching out to other people who want to have a transformative travel experience mm -hmm. because traveling and yoga and healthy food and all of these things have been such a wonderful part of our lives. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's so interesting to me. I think when, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly about the relationships it doesn't matter, you know, which different stage or phase the relationships are in, whether it's a marital relationship or even a friendship. I do feel like it's either growing together or growing apart. If it's stagnant and there's one member who is growing, who is committed to becoming their best selves, even that inequality is going to be, it's going to cause friction in right. the relationship. And again, even this is on a friendship level, not, not even, you know, just uh, designated for the marriage either. So I mm -hmm. love that you guys are able to co-create this together. That's very, very exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting because I really didn't think it was going to happen for a while. We really had a rocky couple of years and it was almost at the point where I could see my life going in two different directions. And one was, one was getting divorced and being okay, because mm -hmm. now that I have my sobriety and I have my spirituality, I knew that I would be okay, even if that worst case scenario happened. Mm -hmm. And the other path I saw was um, him getting sober and us coming together again. And I really, for a while, doubted that that is how it would go. Um, because it doesn't work out for a lot of people in our situation. Mm. But I'm just so fortunate and blessed and thankful to the universe that it did work out that way for us. And it ended up just making us stronger. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for your time and just again, you know, your vulnerability and your authenticity to tell us and, and take us on this journey with you and where you're at now and kind of all that you've got that you're just on the horizon of. I'm so excited for you and I'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation. So thank you for this. Oh, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you and I really appreciate your podcast and all the people you're reaching with it who really have needed this for a long mm -hmm. time, I think. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I will say it publicly as well. Um, as I had said this right before we started recording, my on my bucket list is for the kids and I to uh, join you and your husband on one of your trips very soon. So maybe 2019 or 2020, but we're, uh, we're going to put that out to the universe of saying, yep, we want to be a part of that. Uh, so thank you for, for creating Yay, space for that. We will love to have you. <laughs> I'm that so would excited be amazing. About that idea. We'll make sure to go somewhere <laughs> awesome whenever you guys come. <laughs> all right. This sounds sounds like a plan. Um, so we will definitely post all of those links uh, in our show notes so that you guys have access to Carrie and her husband and what they're creating. If that's something that resonates with you, uh, definitely jump in. And who knows? Maybe we will be on the same adventure together because wouldn't that be fun? Yes. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, Carrie, <laughs> thank you so much. And for you guys who are listening, uh, you know what I'm going to ask you. It's just to share the conversation and to get involved yourself. So whether that is sharing your story with someone else who's in your world that can help you navigate this, or it's sharing the podcast because it resonated with you and you've got somebody in your world that you want to share it with, just keep it going because that's where our healing takes place. It's when we can come out of the shame and come out of the stigma and the judgment and and just to have the honest and raw conversations. Let's call it what it is and then let's heal and let's move on and let's create some change. And that's what the whole thing is about. 
So Carrie, thank you again. We will see you guys soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.